And the words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in verse 35 through 40. Mark 12, verses 35 to 40. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, in chief seats in the synagogues, in places of on banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance's sake offer long people receive greater condemnation. Please pray with me. Lord, there's so much in this text for us to take heed of. My heart rejoices, though, again, at the reality of your sovereignty. Even as in 110, that you will make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. Lord, that there is a day coming when every wrong will be made right and justice will reign upon the earth. And we will be free from sin. We'll be from sorrow. And we will reign with you. Lord, that's our great hope. It's our hope because it's the hope that you purchased for us as you took on flesh and endured the miserable life of a man to suffer in our sin, offer, suffer our sin upon yourself, though you were holy, giving us hope. And Lord, we and that's why we we just declared, which we sung, we want to know you more, because we know that our hope is found only in you. And so, God, if there's anyone here who is does not yet know you, either either is just hard hearted doesn't really want you, or for those who think they know you, but they are are like the scribes and the Pharisees. They know about you, but they don't know you yet. That you would make this the day of salvation. That you would work through your word to open blind eyes. That they too might rejoice with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And Lord, open our eyes to see your glory in this text. And to heed the warning that you give us as well. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we recall that Mark chapter 12, in this text, Mark has been opening for, to us this, show, this showdown uh, between the religious leaders and Jesus. Three times the religious leaders have confronted Jesus and tried to trip him up, either to cause them to say something that they might use against him, to stir up the crowds against him, or that they might use as an excuse to uh, hand him over to the Roman authorities. Uh, First, you had the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
uh, confronting Jesus and try to ask him this question about taxation. And then the Sadducees ask this hypothetical question about the resurrection. The scribe asks him about the greatest commandment. And then verse 34 sums up their response after all these answers. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And again, this was right after the scribe had asked him about the greatest commandment. We looked at that text last week. And this is noteworthy because it's the scribes that Jesus called out in this section. It's the, again, the scribes, they were the religious experts in the law. You could think of them as uh, the, the college professors or the, the leading um, uh, intellectuals of the day, at least within Judaism. And what Jesus points out in verses 35 through 37 is even though they accurately recognize that the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah will be the descendant of David, they fail to recognize that he will also be divine. And they also fail to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the one whom the Old Testament is pointing to. They miss the Messiah. And that's really the point of the text before us. And uh, I want to begin just by looking at verses 35 through 37 that really illustrates how they miss the Messiah. Again, it says in verse 35, And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How can I say that of David? Again, here Jesus asks a question about the Messianic Psalm 110. In fact, the word Christ in verse 35 is the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning the anointed one. Again, the, the, the scribes understood that the Christ or the Messiah was the one whom God had appointed to be the Savior of Israel, who would rescue them from all of their enemies. And he was revealed throughout the scriptures. And Jesus asked this question in order to, to put two truths together. If, if Psalm 110 speaks to the reign of the Messiah, which it does, and the Messiah is also the descendant of David that they recognize, and he is the descendant of David, why is it then that David calls him Lord? Why would David refer to one of his descendants with such an honorific title? And the point is, is that the Messiah be greater than David. Moreover, it also must have existed at least when David existed. In other words, he must be God. And I want to point out a few theological points about this text. First, notice that in verse 36 that Jesus says that David made this prophecy in the Holy Spirit. The one that tells us something about the divine inspiration of the Bible, that every scripture is God-breathed. But it also tells us something about the Trinity. Because in it, you have the Holy Spirit speaking about something that the Father dictates to the Son. So you have all three members present and working together here. So the interesting Trinitarian text. Secondly, it also demonstrates that Jesus had believed in the absolute authority and trustworthiness of 
the grammar and the vocabulary of all of Scripture. In other words, the, the theological term is he believed in the plenary inspiration of the Scripture. That is, that all of the Bible is God-breathed, as it says in Second Timothy. Because this is a confusing verse. It's, it's hard to interpret. Right? But, but the reason the, the scribes fail to interpret it rightly is that it's hinting at something that they wouldn't expect. And see, when we try to make the Scripture um, preconceived understanding about how God should function or how God should act, that's when we end up twisting the Scriptures and actually missing what the Scripture is trying to communicate. The subtle hint that's there in this text, in the grammar and vocabulary, is there for a reason. It's there so that scribes who would study the Scripture, and anybody that would study the Scripture, would recognize the Messiah when He actually showed up. They would recognize that He will be both man and He will be God. And therefore they should be asking themselves, who demonstrates such power and authority and godliness in their life? So again, when Jesus quotes Scripture, he demonstrates absolute confidence in its plenary verbal inspiration. That is, he believes that all the Bible should be interpreted according to its precise grammar, syntax, and structure. And Jesus assumes that the grammar of Psalm 110 is authoritative, even though it poses this theological enigma that's hard to understand. But again, that enigma is there precisely so that the readers would see something they didn't expect to see. And so Jesus' question is meant to demonstrate that they're really close to grasping a great theological truth. But they miss it. They're close, but they don't grasp the point. And Jesus' question is meant to to fill in that missing piece. It's like they've got one of those 1,001-piece jigsaw puzzles. And it's it's almost complete. They just need this piece to fit in, and and they'll see the full piece. And this... Jesus is saying the one piece that you need to make all your knowledge come together is to recognize that the Messiah won't just be man, but is God. Moreover, he's actually even saying, and I'm the missing piece. I am the Messiah. Jesus is no mere man, and therefore to reject him in light of Psalm 110 is to become his enemies one of his enemies, and one of those whom he will put under his feet. So Jesus is also giving a warning, even in this question, to these scribes who are trying to attack him. And the reason is Jesus had spent the last two years of his life performing miracles to validate for Israel that they would see that this is the Messiah. He's opening blind eyes. He's raising people from the dead. He is healing people with lifelong infirmities. He was no mere preacher. Jesus was no mere prophet. He was God. And so not only is he indicating what the missing piece is, the Messiah is God. He's indicating, I am the missing piece. You should see that I am the one this psalm is speaking to. But of course... The reason the scribes reject him is because they don't want him. See, the problem isn't that they didn't just 
find the right answer. The problem is their heart. They're fine with knowing about the Messiah. They just don't want him. They want his benefits, all the blessings that he'll bring, but they don't want his authority in their life. For that's what the conflict ultimately is about in Mark 11 through 13 is the want to have authority. They don't want to submit themselves to the authority. And in fact, that's what that's the problem in every one of our hearts, too. All of us struggle just like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We don't like it when the Bible meddles with our lives. We don't mind learning about the Bible. We don't mind learning about doctrine. But when it starts telling us we need to repent, we need to give up our idols, we need to stop living for the things that we love and instead live fully for Him, that's when we say, well, I, I won't, I'm not going to believe in that, Jesus. And Jesus is saying here, you, if you go that route, you will be the one who is placed beneath my feet. And that, that's the warning. Again, the scribes had their theological ducks in a row, but their heart is aiming at the wrong thing. That's why they, they, they miss it. And again, what holds them back from grasping what others think is their heart. I mean, if you th- just recognize that there have been many others that have recognized who Jesus is, but the experts in the law, the religious leaders, miss him. Blind Bartimaeus, remember a couple chapters earlier, when he saw Jesus, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, he recognized who Jesus was. And Peter, when Jesus asked, well, who do people say that I am? Remember what Peter said. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter was just a fisherman. Or the crowds even, as he entered Jerusalem, cried out, what? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They recognized this was the Messiah. And if these less learned people recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, why is it that the the scribes miss him and even set themselves against him? With all the scriptures that the Lord gave his people, they of all people should know why, uh, who the Messiah is, but they seek to crucify him. Well, Jesus actually explains why in verses 38 through 40 because the scribes aim at the world. In his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will... The reason the scribes... At, at the core of their heart, the reason they failed to recognize the Messiah wasn't a lack of knowledge. It wasn't a lack of information. It was a hardness of heart. They wanted the world. They, they weren't looking for a savior from their sins. They were looking for a means to a better life. Again, they weren't, even, they weren't concerned about their sin. But they were concerned with acquiring more power, more prestige, more influence, more pleasure. 
Again, they missed the Messiah because what they were aiming at was the world and all of its goods. They weren't searching the scriptures to know God, to love God, and to obey God. Rather, they were searching the scriptures in order to justify their lifestyle, to justify their authority, to justify their ostentation. And that's why Jesus pronounces such a solemn warning. Beware of the scribes. In other words, he's saying, don't be like them. Don't like what they like. In fact, notice, notice the key word that Jesus uses in verse 38. It's the word like. In, in the Greek, it's the word fellow, desire. In fact, it's the same word used by Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, not what I desire, but what you desire. Not what I like, but what you would like. Jesus is saying what he wants is what the Father wants. And not what his flesh is crying out for. But the scribes, they march to the beat of a different drum. They want what's listed here. What do they desire? To walk around in long And the, the, the robes refer to the sleeve garments. Uh, garments that were worn on festive occasions. Uh, priestly or royal robes. Um, in other words, they like to dress to impress. They want to be seen by others. They want to be noticed by others. They want, they want people to, to recognize something about them when they walk into the room. And they want to be set up and respected. They also want to be, again, respected and honored. That's the point of the greetings and the seats. As they would come into a town, because of their position, they would be given a, a, a greeting. Welcome, Father so-and-so, or Rabbi so-and-so, or however they would greet one another. Similar to, like, um, if you're in the military, uh, um, uh, NCO will salute their officers when they come into a room. Or anybody under... A different rank. You always salute those of a higher rank. That's almost what was happening here in Israel is everybody recognized these are a higher rank and the greeting or the, the seats was a way of recognizing this person's distinction. And they were attracted to that. They were chief seats in the synagogues. These were like benches up front in the congregation. They would actually sit. Uh, scriptures were being read and they would look out on all the congregation and Likewise, the congregation would look out at them. So they would always be the center of attention during worship services. They would also sit in places of honor at banquets. And it's not, it's not wrong to, 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 to like to be honored or to be treated with respect or to appreciate nice clothes and, think, and things. The problem with this is they were, do, they were pursuing their religious leadership because they wanted these things. It was the motivation that was the problem. They wanted the nice clothes. They wanted the respect. They wanted the honor. That's why they wanted to be leaders of the people of Israel. That's the problem. They were using God to gain the world. And that's condemning enough. 
But Jesus' next words are really piercing. He notes that they devour widows' houses. And what Jesus is referencing is the fact that pious Jews would often um, leave whole fortunes to the temple. It's a way of just giving to the Lord. People will do that today. They pass away and they'll have a trust and they'll give it to a ministry. In fact, some of the more prevalent ministries are funded by trusts that people have given. Instead of giving their money to um, their descendants, they'll give it to a, a charity or a ministry. Remember, it was the, the Kroc family when I worked at Salvation Army as a, at a Kroc family used to own, were the founders and owners of McDonald's, and they almost gave their entire fortune to the Salvation Army. Well, this is similar. This, something similar would happen to, um, uh, in Israel, the pious Jews would leave whole fortunes to the temple, and a good part of that money would actually go to the scribes. Again, they were like lawyers. In fact, it was the scribes who they would hire out to do all the paperwork. And the scribes would convince widows, taking advantage of their opportunity as experts in the law, to finagle widows out of money so that they could get more money. They were using the situation of the weak to take advantage of them. So not only are they hypocritical and proud and ostentatious, they are also ruthless lovers of money. And again, these are the religious leaders. Those who everybody looks up to and sees as an example. And they're being driven by, not by a love for God, but by a love for the world. And so is it any surprise that most of Israel has become apostate? Later, they will cry out, crucify him to a man who did nothing and proved his righteousness again and again. Jesus' point is that they are pursuing religion for non-religious reasons. They want to be seen as pious because they want to gratify their impious desires. And in his evaluation of the scribe, Jesus highlights really three fundamental motivations for ministry. Love of money, love of position, and love of respect. And what's really noteworthy is these are the very same things that John words about in his letter of 1 John, chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And they're very similar to the reasons which persuaded Eve to forsake God and the fruit. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. This is the point. Satan knows how to play us like a fiddle. He knows how to get after us. I was just reading in uh, my time of family worship at the dinner table with the boys. We're reading through the book of Numbers and, of course, tried to pronounce a curse on all of Israel, but was thwarted when he tried to make these prophecies. All he did was bless Israel. We know that. But what happens right after that is they go to Peor, and we, from other scriptures, we recognize that it was Balaam who convinced the people of Moab to lead the people astray through sexual immorality. Okay, so 
Balaam couldn't accomplish his purposes through demonic means. But all he needs to do is appeal to the lusts of people. And he's got them. He knows us. And it's so easy for us to be duped into thinking that we are serving God because of what we're doing when the primary motivation in our heart is really about ourselves. It is so duped into serving our own selfish passions. And I say this because these are frequently the very same ambitions behind those who desire to be leaders in the church today. Not always. And I think for most people, there's often a mixture. We have selfish motivations and we have solid, godly, good motivations. And there's a mix. But often, the real driving elements are these elements. And that's why Jesus gives the warning. And this is true for both men and women. And I mention women because the issue of women in leadership is one of the most, in church leadership is one of the most controversial issues in evangelicalism today. And there's a lot of controversial issues in evangelicalism. So, Women are desiring leadership in the church and trying to get the scripture to, to justify what that might look like. And men have been seeking to justify worldly ambitions as well for since the beginning of the church. And it's easy to take for granted that if a person just desires to serve the church as a leader, then they should. Because what they desire is a good thing. Who wants to serve and lead and talk about Jesus? Why would we question their motivations? What they're doing is good. That's why Jesus says it, because it's easy just to think because they want to do a good thing that their motivations are good. And he's saying, be aware, don't be like the scribes. And throughout history, people have seen the church as an opportunity for self-advancement. I was just reading about uh, one of the most influential godly men in uh, Scotland after the Puritan era, Thomas Calmer's. Uh, he went into the ministry initially because um, it was a way for him to teach mathematics at, uh, I believe it was the University of Edinburgh, and he could get a, a nice job as a pastor at a local church, and it would only require him to visit it you know, two days a week, and he could spend the rest of his time however he liked. He had no heart for the people, had no desire to teach. He just wanted to find a job where he could it would have free him up to do what he wanted. And that was what motivated a lot of people in the Church of Scotland. Well, he eventually got saved and actually in time is the one who started the movement for the, to, to, so that, Pat, so that well, it's complicated on how that all worked. But the point is, is that even back then and throughout medieval history, all the way going back to the early church, often what motivated people in pursuing ministry, think of Simon Magus in the book of Acts, was acquisition, prestige. Power. This is no new thing. People assume if they're serving the church, they can justify their worldly desires because by all appearances, they're being motivated by a desire to serve. But if we desire to serve the church, which we should, we should all desire to serve the church here in some capacity. At the same time, we need to be very wary of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Because the pride in your own soul is far more destructive and dangerous 
to you and the church than a failure to use your giftedness. The church not having your giftedness is not as much of a threat as a scribe-like heart. We just need to be aware of that. And I say this because of what Jesus says in verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. Well, why greater condemnation? Because they should have known better. They had all the resources. They had the word. They had the warnings. They didn't lack resources or the truth. In fact, they used the truth rather than God. It's like the, the supreme act of perversion. You see that? The greatest reflection of our rebellion since the garden has been our desire to want to exalt ourselves. And so the greatest act of perversion is to take the word of God that is holy and pure and service to the church, which is good and pure, and to use that instead to exalt ourselves is horrible. It's the supreme act of perversion, which is why Jesus says they will receive a greater condemnation. And I think if you were to ask many Christians who are aspiring to leadership, what is it they think that the world needs? Probably most of them would say they need to hear about Jesus. They need the word of God to be taught to them. Of course, that would be true. But I think often what they really mean by that is that what they really think is that the world needs them to tell other people about Jesus and the truth. That they are what the world needs, or at least Jesus needs them to communicate to the world. The world needs their words, their insights, their ideas, their giftedness. And, and again, I realize there's a tension, right? I have all people recognize this tension. We need to engage the world. We need to preach and teach. We need to write. We need to communicate. We need to lead. We need to be active. We need to engage people strategically. But at the same time, we need to be very wary of the propensity of our own heart to love this world. So what, what does godly aspiration to serve the church look like? Well, Jesus tells us. He's told us already. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, You know those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever shall be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So how can we know our motives? And that is, that's the challenging question, right? Why? Well, I, I think we can weary ourselves by being too introspective and trying to figure out, you know, is this is a good motivation or a bad motivation? And I think really a more helpful track would be instead uh, to direct our attention outward rather than inward. In other words, the way to really know and gauge your, your motivations is seek to do things that are clearly not in line with what this world would want. Not in line with your natural propensities and desires. Do things that are clearly of no personal benefit to you. 
Seek to humble yourself. Sacrifice. Serve. So you might not be able to know your heart motivations. I often, Paul even said, I don't even judge myself. But you can take actions that clearly are against what would naturally be your motivations. So, some, some thoughts on what we can do. Pursue ministries that are real sacrifice. That are really hard for you. It could be in giving more. Financially. Serving more. Maybe having to get up early on a Sunday morning or stay later on a Sunday morning. Something that's uncomfortable. Something that you might have to take action at Saturday night in order to do it effectively. Become a greeter if you're an introvert. Because it's hard. That's the point. Get outside of your comfort zone. If you have an interest in music, instead of thinking, oh, the, the church needs to hear my beautiful voice, we might be blessed by it, that may be true. But instead, especially serve if you're like uncomfortable singing in front of people. That's actually an indication that, 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 that you're not doing it for yourself. If you have a heart to teach, start with children. Start with... Aim at, secondly, aim at cutting out worldly comforts, not adding to them. And this is how Christians should think in all of their decisions. Rather than thinking of how can I build bigger, better, nicer homes... Easier, more comfortable, less stressful life. Think, how can I cut out the wor- what the world wants in order to serve Christ more easily? Again, this is how Christians should think in most decisions. Thirdly, pursue things that will make you more like a slave and less like a master. Right? That's the aim. What's going to make you feel less like a master and more like a slave? You guys know what that's like. When people treat you, condescend to you, speak to you in a certain way, you think this task is beneath me, that's the task you should be pursuing in your heart. Because that's your, you want to be like Christ. You don't want to be like the scribes. Move away from power, pride, and prestige and towards Submission and sacrifice. I remember being struck, I mean, that was probably 10 years ago, by a sermon by John Piper. Um, it was actually on missions, if I recall. This is what he said. He had been, the church, Bethlehem Baptist, had been um, recently going through a, a series of sermons on uh, the conflict in Sudan. So this was like, yeah, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe. And, um, he says that they were focusing on the suffering church and many across the nation were involved. We saw videos and heard stories about places like Sudan where the Muslim regime was systematically ostracizing, positioning, and starving Christians. So that there were about 500 martyrs a day in Sudan. So that's what the church had been focusing on. In the same time, they were actually looking to hire people for the church to serve in ministry downtown and he says in light of this i got very tired of candidates for staff positions in our inner city saying will our children be safe i've grown tired of such american priorities infecting the mission of the church whoever said that your children will be safe in the call of god 
And what struck me about that comment was that he was right. It struck me because he was right. What business does a follower of Christ have in treating ministry like a business? The last thing a follower of Christ should be concerned about is safety. What they've been called to do. It's like they haven't read the job description. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What happens to sheep in the midst of wolves? Their children are safe. No, you see not. Verse 24 of Matthew 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And I understand I, I, I the desire to want to make a difference in your life for Christ. We should all have that desire. We, we, we want to make a difference and serve Christ with all our life and have the greatest impact we can. And as I think about people who have made the greatest impact of the church in the, in the last few hundred years, I think of John Calvin. At least he would rank high on the list. Calvin, of course, is known for writing book of the Bible. His set fills a whole bookshelf. He also wrote his Institutes. But even these are just a portion of what he wrote. He also penned hundreds of letters and sermons and tracts and treatises. And in view view of all of what Calvin was able to produce in his ministry, it's tempting to assume that such productivity was due to having a life of a scholar, a peaceful, quiet life that freed him up just to sit in his study and think and write without distraction. But that's nothing what Calvin's life was like. That's the life that Calvin wanted, but that's actually not the life that God Calvin. In fact, he writes that he was on his way to Strasbourg to begin enjoying a quiet, tranquil life of a scholar when he was providentially redirected to Geneva, which is where he did most of his ministry. And the night he stayed in Geneva, William Farrell implored him to stay to help the cause of the Reformation in Geneva. Many of you know this story. But I'll write what Calvin says about his experience with this conversation of Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wish to keep myself free from other pursuits. In other words, serving here in Geneva. And finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter with an imprecation that God would curse my retirement. And the tranquility of my studies, which I sought, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. And by this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. So Calvin decided to stay and leave this pursuit of a quiet life to serve in this really um, tumultuous city of Geneva. And one would think that now that he's settled down in Geneva and he's given his, died to himself and given up his ambition to leave a quiet life behind him, that now God would actually give him that quiet, tranquil life that he wanted because he had submitted to the Lord, 
Right? That's how we like us to think as Christians. If we just give in once, then we can go back to holding on to our desire. Well, the Lord is more gracious to us than to Calvin. Opposition against him in that city was so great that he was eventually banished. Did by the same people who banished him to come back and serve the city? He wrote to his friend that there is no other place under heaven which I can have greater dread. And there were people being persecuted throughout all of Germany and France in that time. And Geneva was more terrifying than all of them. Which tells you something about his experience in Geneva. Nevertheless, he returned. And what sustained him was the knowledge that God uses suffering to transform his children into Christ-likeness. He wrote this in his Institutes. For whomever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of his fellowship ought to prepare themselves for a hard, toilsome, and unquiet life, crammed with very many and various kinds of evils. It is the Heavenly Father's will thus to exercise them so as to put his own children to a definite test. Beginning with Christ, his firstborn, he follows his plan with all his children. Well, did God use Calvin? Yes, immensely. But he used Calvin precisely because Calvin put himself in the way of life. And I don't think we often recognize that. Often the people that God uses the most aren't the ones that have set apart their life the way they want it. It's the one who have died to themselves to give up what they most hold precious and dear that God then is set free to use them in his power, not in their fleshly power, not in their fleshly intellect or fleshly resources. It's those who are willing to give all to Christ, to surrender all to Him, that then God can finally use to demonstrate the power of His power in them. And that's why Calvin was so useful. And the reason the scribes missed the Messiah is because they didn't really want Him. They just wanted more of this world. And it's such people that God can't use. And in fact, the devil uses. And with such people, all their religious activities are vain. They dupe themselves and those who follow them into thinking that they serve God, when in fact all that they serve is themselves. I close with the words of Paul from Philippians 3. Brothers, sisters, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body from the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And Lord, we need such reminders. Lord, it is so easy to do the right thing with the wrong motives. And I pray that you would continue to 
rip out every vestige of worldliness. Purify us. Present before us opportunities to humble ourselves and to serve and to sacrifice, to give in such a way that we would know with confidence that we serve not ourselves but you who died and rose again. Heavenly Father, we don't want to just be consistent Christians. We want to be more and more faithful, more and more Christ-like. Lord, we don't care if about us. We don't care if we're despised and mocked. I mean, we do, of course, we, we, want to, we don't want to be that way. Lord, in our heart of hearts, we want to be like you. We don't want to be distracted. We certainly don't want to be motivated by the wrong things. And so continue to purify each one of us individually so that as a church, it would be seen that we are a church that is pursuing you. And again, Father, we know that that's only a work that can be accomplished by your grace. And that's why we ask for it. We beg for it. Give us your grace to be like you and not to be deceived like the scribes. We ask these things in your name. Amen.